Friends, hear the word of the Lord found in Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and though the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. Good morning, Fifth. It's so good to be here with you, back home again, Fifth Reformed Church. Haven't said that in a long time. Uh, it's so nice to be back here. I want to thank uh, Kathy and her team for the invitation to be here with you all today. Uh, I just so happened to be in town, uh, in Toronto yesterday. And uh, when you live in Florida, that's pretty close to Grand Rapids, so it's nice. Uh, I just want to acknowledge my, my family is here with me today as well. My mother, uh, my daughter came uh, all the way from Lansing. And uh, we also have a special gift with us today. Our general secretary of the RCA is here. Reverend Eddie Aleman is here with us today. Wanna... It's actually amazing he's here because he drove me from Toronto yesterday. So he spent an entire day in a car with me and he still showed up. So <laughs> that's amazing. So I uh, just wanted to give you an update. What have I been doing these last five years? Uh, some of you may know, Melody and I moved to Florida five years ago after our youngest Molly graduated from high school here in Grand Rapids. Uh, we went there to specifically build a new classes for the RCA, which is called Classes de las Naciones. Uh, for years, uh, Pastor John and I would go to a church planting conference held in Orlando every January or February. I know, somebody had to do it. <laughs> and it was there uh, I started making connections with pastors, particularly coming out of Latin America, who had been called to plant churches in Florida. Uh, all of them come from a reform background and were looking for a new home. Uh, I don't, uh, well, actually, prior to that, seven years ago, I think, maybe, Eddie, uh, Eddie and I were having a meal together, and he told me then that he felt God wanted me to move to Florida. So it's his fault. Uh, 
But together, Eddie and I started dreaming of a different kind of classes. Uh, I don't know if you know about the history of the RCA in Florida. Uh, just to let you know, 20-some years ago, we had 24 congregations in the state of Florida. All of them were built around snowbirds coming from Michigan and Indiana and New York. Uh, by the time Melody and I arrived in Florida, there were four. And uh, they were all dying. They're all predominantly white. Uh, there was no life whatsoever. But Eddie and I had this idea of, what if we actually planted churches with people that live in Florida, reaching people that live in Florida? That might be a better strategy. And as God kept cultivating these relationships, it became clear what was happening. And we're gonna talk a lot more about what we're seeing globally and how it impacts what we're doing. But our grand, the grand vision of Clases de las Naciones is to build a bridge from the global south to North America. Uh, we, we were not intending to build a bridge to, and that's an important distinction. So I'm happy to announce that as of today, uh, we have 25 Reformed Church of America congregations between Atlanta, Georgia, and Florida. We have seven church plants that are growing. Uh, we, we also have one organized church in the Dominican Republic, which we adopted into the classes. Uh, we have two organizing churches on the Dominican Republic. By the way, in the, Domin the Dominican, I am known as El Gigante. <laughs> For those of you who don't speak Spanish, I'm called the giant. We have 30 church planters on the island of the Dominican Republic working to build new churches all over the island. Uh, we also, let me get this right, we have new churches in London, England. We have two churches now in Portugal. Uh, we are building 10 churches in Brazil, including one that is for the deaf. Uh, we have this church planting couple from Cuba felt the call to go plant this church in Brazil, sold all of their goods, moved to the most southern city in Brazil, and have launched seven churches for the deaf. If you don't know, the deaf are the number one un most unreached people group in the world. Uh, we have churches in Argentina, uh, Romania, Puerto Rico. Uh, we have two plants that are emerging in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, we also have, uh, outside of our classes, there's two Spanish-speaking churches that are growing in Amsterdam. Did anybody get the irony about that? <laughs> but let's be honest. When we talk about what's happening in the RCA, this is not the conversation that you hear a lot, especially up here. When I come up north here, we're not talking a lot about the global expansion of the RCA. It tends to have two different topic points. One is controversy, and one is loss. And I acknowledge it might feel all doom and gloom, but I want to assure you that globally, Christianity has never been in a better place. There have never been as many Christians alive on this planet at one time as there are today. Christianity is exploding. 
effect, if you look at the global market, there are so many more Christians, 400 million more just in China than in the US and Canada combined. So I'm wondering, how do we reconcile the doom and gloom that we feel in part of the denomination and this excitement we're seeing about planting new churches and people coming to Christ all over the world, how do we reconcile these two opposing ideas? I contend that we ought to, as always, return to scripture and seek out our answers there. And I believe that what we're seeing today's, in today's passage will give us a glimpse at how God built his church regardless of the church's struggles. So today I wanna to ask three different questions. Number one, what's happening in our scripture? Two, how does that help us understand our circumstances in North America and in our denomination? And three, what should we be doing about that? If that sounds good, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this World Communion Sunday where we get to come together and think about all the Christians that you are raising up around the world. We celebrate you and your son's sacrifice today on our behalf. Father, as we talk about what you're doing around the world, we ask that your spirit rest among us, bring us together as one, forgive the speaker and speak clearly through him. In Christ's name, amen. So let's start in the Bible. What's happening in scripture? Well, it begins by alluding to the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem. Now this is reminding us of the persecution the early Christians were experiencing in Jerusalem. And as a result, a lot of Christians fled in every single direction outside of Jerusalem and some headed north to Antioch. Antioch's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem on the border of Syria. Now there is a different Antioch mentioned later in Acts, different town. That's the one by Turkey. This is the one in Syria. An important city of trade, there was an important trade route that went through Antioch. So it was a very important Hellenistic city. Uh, it was the kind of place where you would see everybody pass by from the world. There's a place in London, England called Trafalgar Square where they say if you sit in Trafalgar Square long enough, you will see the entire world pass you by. Um, I was just there a few months ago, um, and I sat there for an hour, and I didn't see one person I knew. So I suspect you have to sit there longer than an hour. But before Stephen's stoning, another profound event happened. It was pretty transformative, and it happens in the Bible in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And that was the day where the Christian church went from approximately 120 to 3,120 in one day. The disciples did their best to handle the influx of new disciples. And one of the things they did that's very interesting to me is they sold all their possessions, and they pooled all their resources into one place, so that no one had any need in the community and even those poor around them were blessed. But that always raises a question to me, why don't we do that? 
why, don't, why doesn't every church just sell everything and pool everything together? Now, one reason I would say no, that we shouldn't do that, is kind of hidden inside of our passage. Near the end of the text today, you hear about a prophecy that was given to the church in Antioch that a famine was about to hit Jerusalem. And so we know from history what actually happened is the floor dropped out of the economy in Jerusalem. And it was the Christians in Antioch that pooled together their limited resources and brought it back to Jerusalem. Now in hindsight, we see that the gospel can't be contained and the sovereignty of God established this new base in preparation for the coming famine. But I also think there's a different reason. And I think it's a critical reason why we've seen the Holy Spirit move the power center of the church from time to time. And I say that that's a fear of change that leads to a lack of focus on mission. Our good leader, Eddie, likes to remind us that we don't believe that the RCA has an issue with human sexuality. We have an issue of focus. I couldn't agree more with that. It's well known that in Jerusalem, they had a very difficult time with preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. That's everybody that's not Jewish. And that they began to argue about whether or not these new Hellenistic Christians needed to become Jewish before converting to Christ, before taking communion. Churches throughout that time got stuck in traditions and customs that sometimes became just as important as scripture. Now the author wisely puts the story of Peter's vision right before this story, because it describes exactly the tension between keeping the law and embracing change. And it's not that Peter was doing something bad. He was trying to be as devout as he could and maybe he felt he was being tempted, but God kept telling Peter, no, these are, this is clean now. There's a new way of approaching this. And it's not until, and I believe this is critical for the future of the North American church to get. It's not until Peter accepts the hospitality of a centurion that he really gets to embrace the change. I truly believe that understanding hospitality is the way forward for the church. Churches, like the rest of humanity, resist change. But sometimes our churches have adopted quite well. Early on in our history in the Reformed Church, maybe you know this, uh, we come from the Netherlands. I know, it's strange, right? Uh, I was actually in Amsterdam a few months ago, and I, I came across this square that was built in uh, 1643. That's a pretty interesting date. And in that square is this old English Reformed church. On the doorway of this old English Reformed church is this inglassed piece of paper that tells the story of why this person loves attending this church and the transformation this person experienced at this church. And it's signed by Vincent van Gogh. And equally as impressive to me is if you go around the side, there's a plaque on the wall given to the church by the pastors of the Reformed Church in America in 1924 
to acknowledge our heritage in Amsterdam. Isn't that cool? I actually took a picture of it and sent it to Eddie and wondered if he'd ever seen that. We were both pretty surprised to see that. But all of our early pastors came from there. We built our early, earliest churches in New Amsterdam, which is now New York. And there were, for a long time, in order to be an ordained minister of word and sacrament in the RCA, you had to go back to the Netherlands and study in Dutch. You had to come back to the United States and preach in Dutch. Now, as you might imagine, that became untenable because people largely spoke English in the States. And so to adapt to that change, the RCA built a place called New Brunswick Theological Seminary in which I am studying my doctorate right now at that institution, the first seminary in the United States, by the way. And that was the first place that pastors could go study in English and be ordained in the Reformed Church to preach in English. So it is possible to be adaptive to changes. So how did Jerusalem embrace change? Well, we know that Jerusalem hears about what's going on up in Antioch. These Greek Hellenist people are embracing Jesus. So they do what any good Jewish person does and they send Barnabas up to see what's going on. Barnabas is blown away by what he sees. And so he understands there's a need for someone to go teach the law and the prophets to these new Hellenistic Christians. And there's no better person than Paul. Now, just as a sidebar, I want you to get the significance of what just happened. How cool is it that this church started because Stephen was stoned and standing there holding the cloaks of the stoners was a guy named Saul. Everyone flees, builds this church, and who comes to teach them the law and the prophets? That same kid. They call him Paul now. Only God does something like that. Then Antioch sends Paul out, and he does a pretty good job planting churches everywhere. So how does this help us understand our circumstances? The stark reality is we know that since the 1990s, the mainline church in the United States has seen over a 40% loss of membership. That, that was even before COVID, which basically was napalm on a burning fire. For some, they believe the solution to the decline was due to a lack of relevancy with the culture. So we ought to build churches that better reflect the experience and cultural presets around the church. Maybe if we just had better music. By the way, it is such a joy to be back with my old bandmates, Randy and John. What a gift. I hope you guys appreciate the quality of music you have. It's such a blessing to be back. Yeah, they deserve that. Yeah, if you don't know me, um, I was basically known as Jana's drummer when I was here. So anyway, <laughs> maybe if we just had better lighting, maybe if our preachers uh, could preach better, we had better seating, people would be more reticent to wake up early on a Sunday morning and sit in a room. 
Also in the 90s, the RCA began to embrace what's called church growth theory and uh, that particular model of planting churches. And I'm personally thrilled with most of the fruit of that. The hard truth is that most of our church plants grew with the already convinced rather than seeing new people come to Christ. If you really look at the numbers, the hard reality is places like Willow Creek grew by taking people from area churches in Chicago, not brilliantly by preaching the gospel and seeing lives transformed. Today, we seemingly focus on issues that tear us apart rather than the one thing we were commanded to do, which is to make disciples. Now, I'm not excited about the existing decline, but what if I were to tell you what's happening within our own tribe is nothing new historically? There's two historic things I want to point out to help us better understand the place in time that we live. Now, the first, I believe that we are seeing the origins of a great recentering of the Christian church. For the first time since Pentecost, the base of growth and life wasn't in Jerusalem, but now it shifted to Antioch. That was the first recentering. And it happened several other times throughout history. After Antioch, the center of the ch church shifted to Rome. And after 333 AD, the church followed the capital of the Roman Empire to Turkey. From Turkey, the shift happened again and recentered in Western Europe, places like Germany, France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, England, Ireland, and Scotland. Does anybody want to guess where the next center of Christianity was? All right, so most of my classes is Hispanic. Um, so I am mostly used to speaking in front of Spanish-speaking people. And uh, I just want you to know that I'm used to asking questions and people responding now. <laughs> so you white people make me a little nervous. <laughs> so I want you to feel comfortable. And when I ask a question, feel free to express yourself. That would make me feel warm and at home. Does anybody want to guess where the new center of the church was? The USA. And we had a good 200-year run. But as my missiology professor says, that shifted about 50 years ago. The new center of the church we know is in the global south is in South America, it is in Africa, and it is in Asia. Like I said, the Christian church is exploding. In the past two decades, we've seen Protestantism grow by 1,200% in both Latin America and Africa, faster than the Catholic church. And there is a very fast-growing reformed movement in both of those places. If we look at Asia, in that same time frame, the Christian church has grown, does anybody know? What percent? Please don't be quiet. Does anybody know how fast the Christian church is growing in Africa, or Asia? What is it, Greg? Oh, 3,200%. 3,200%. 3, 
200%. The church in China is estimated, like I said, have over 400 million Christians worshiping today, which is more, more than all of the U.S. and Canadian churches combined. More, 400 million more. And that's a conservative guess because it's illegal. It's underground. So most of the growth happens in living room to living room. We can't even count it. In fact, if you were to average everyone planting churches around the world today, the average church planter today is an 18-year-old Chinese woman who has no education and she has already planted three churches today. That is how fast the church is growing. The largest church in the world is in Seoul, Korea. They have 15 worship services every weekend. And they have people that attend this church from the mountains outside of Seoul and walk an entire day to attend Wednesday night prayer. An entire day back. Every single week. That's remarkable. Here's another thing I want to point out. And I think it's important to understand our place in history. In her book, The Great Emergence, our dearly departed sister, Phyllis Tickle, wrote that every 500 years in the church history, God throws a rummage sale. Here we would call it a garage sale, right? Every 500 years, there's a significant upheaval in the church. You can start with the life of Christ. You can actually take it all the way back to Abraham. It, it works. Go through all, all scripture. There's a 500-year cycle. After Jesus, many years later, Rome makes Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire, right? What happens after that? Nicaea happens. 500 years later, the Great Schism. It's when the Orthodox Church splits from the Catholic Church. Does anybody know what happened 500 years after the Great Schism? Good Reformed people know this. The Protestant Reformation. Does anybody know what we celebrated a couple years ago? The 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That should be a big light bulb for everybody. That number again, 500 years. We are at the beginning of the new Reformation. So God has recentered his church to the global south. Here we stand at the beginning of the next Reformation. Now, I've traveled a lot this last year or so. Um, I left my phone back there, but I could show you. I have an app that tracks all my air miles. Uh, I have 244,000 miles that I've tracked around the world, um, and it's been a blessing. But I've been able to visit a few churches. And one thing you know about these cycles is there is always churches from the last cycle that still exist. So I've been able to visit this year a beautiful stone church in Dublin, Ireland. It's gorgeous. It's now a bar. Uh, the old church, there's an old Reformed church in Amsterdam that I got to visit, other than the English Reformed church. And there's still a church that meets there, about 10 people, but largely it's used as a museum. 
Then there's the old wooden church I visited that was built pre-Reformation uh, in the south of Spain. Um, and there's a plaque that remembers that church. One thing they all have in common is pretty much they're all closed. I wonder if there's a way to change our willingness to adapt, to break our fear from becoming a relic of the last 500 years. That's a big question I have in my head. What do we need to be doing? So here's some observation I want to share with you about what we could be doing right now. Now, if you look at all the times God shifted the center, I contend that it hasn't been since the church was centered in Antioch and moved to Rome, that the center of Christianity was not in the place where the political, economic, and military power resided. This is the first time since Antioch, the center of the Christian church is in the hands of the poor. That's probably significant. It's gotta mean something, right? Now, here's the good news. Right off the bat, we witness in Antioch the faithful giving of people who were terribly impoverished to bring financial blessings back to the old center. And we're seeing that again today. One thing that we did not do good when the, when the Christian church shifted from Western Europe to the United States, we didn't go back. We didn't try to revive Westminster Abbey. We didn't go back and plant tons of churches in England. We're just now planting churches in Amsterdam where we're from. But the first thing that happens in this new reformation is they're sending church planters to us. Do you know that the United States is the number one receiver of missionaries in the world? We receive more missionaries than any country in the world. In the last decade, the Nigerian Baptist Church has planted 20 churches in Houston, Texas. That should be shocking. 20 new churches, the Nigerian Baptist. The largest church in the Ukraine still is a Nigerian Baptist church. They have 400,000 members and the only Nigerian in the church is the pastor. And he speaks Russian. <laughs> so we're seeing an Antiochian change because we have pastors who were raised in Reformation studies. Our long lost brother, R.C. Sproul in the 80s, went to South America and launched three seminaries. I don't know if you know this. Venezuela, Peru, and Chile. Most of the pastors in my classes graduated from those seminaries. So they come to the United States deeply reformed. It's amazing to see the fruit of mission all these years. Today in the RCA, like no other time in our 400 year history, God is drawing new churches and pastors from all over the global south. We've already organized our first church in Santiago, Chile this year, Pastor Orlando. We've organized two RCA churches in the south of Argentina. We have many, many more. Our, our director of church multiplication, Andres Serrano, 
is in conversations with 500 churches from the global south that want to belong to the Reformed Church. 500. He actually called Eddie and I as we were driving from Toronto over here yesterday. He let us know that he had been able to preach in front of thousands and thousands of new Reformed believers in Venezuela yesterday. Through an RCA pastor who came from Caracas and now resides in Miami, Florida. In February, I found myself in the poorest barrio in Santo Domingo called Santo Domingo Norte where I got to preach the gospel alongside my good friend and brother, Micah, who is the president of New Brunswick Theological Seminary. And us two Americans did our best to communicate in very bad Spanish the gospel of Jesus. And we were able to lead prayer for salvation to 24 young people under the age of 20 in the barrio. We stood on the side of this makeshift van that moved stuff. It's, it was fun. In Portugal, just last week, our new pastor, El Viazio, launched another new church in Porto, and they baptized 45 new believers. Every time we organize a new Reformed congregation in my classes, we hold baptisms. In fact, my pastors like to one-up each other. So our first organization, we had six baptisms. In our second one, we had 12. In our third, it just keeps going. I think we've hit 55 or so in one service. It's amazing. These are just some of the sparks of light that we're seeing in the Reformed Church right now. So one other observation. If we consider the 500-year rummage sale, never before in the 500-year cycle did people realize that they were in a reformation. Now, I love church history, but I don't think there was ever a time, maybe people that lived in Germany can correct this, um, I don't think there was ever a time that Calvin and Huss and Zwingli, uh, Luther, sat around a table at a pub and said, can you believe we're part of the Protestant Reformation? But because of the internet and our smaller global community, we know exactly what's going on we know that we're part of a reformation. This means that we can actually take steps right now to prepare for what's coming. Now, I want you to just to pause and just remember something. If you're getting a little frightened by change, as everyone does, everything around you right now came from the last reformation. The way that we gather, where we gather, how we gather, our liturgy, our traditions, they've all changed over ages and ages of Christendom. And the way that we understand that we do church properly and in order would have been heretical to the early church. I tell you that because the most common way people worship and gather as the church today looks nothing like what we're doing right now. I have sat in crowded living rooms in the third world where people are scared to hold their Bibles that are illegal with just a light bulb desperately studying the text. They didn't come that day because a gringo was gonna come and talk to them about what was happening in the global church. They don't care. 
They didn't come because they had great music or good coffee. They came because their lives depend on it. That is the average worship service today. This is not. So just a warning, things are gonna change. What we know as traditional church is gonna be reshaped by the new center. But it's okay. That doesn't mean we just throw out, we sell the building, we just start meeting in living rooms. I just want you to understand that the global recenterization, I think I just made that up, will have an impact on the church here in North America. But what should we be doing? I have two things. Remember to focus on your mission. Do whatever the spirit tells you to do to grow disciples who make disciples in this context. That way doesn't have to match the third reforms way that they make disciples. And just so you know, I talked to third reformed, they would only be interested in a merger if you fix that fraction that's upside down. So the fifth third thing doesn't work. So John, I'm sorry. That was a joke for anybody who was here last week. <laughs> Don't be like other churches when facing change. This is one of the things I preach the most when I go to Latin America because they're still thinking the way to be a successful church is to get a bunch of people in a room, play good music, have a great experience, and leave and don't come back for a week. That's what everybody's striving for because they still look to America as the blueprint. And I try to encourage them that they need to show us the blueprint. We are now the receivers of the gospel. Amen. Boy, do we need it. Don't be afraid of the change. Now, the church historically has had one of three reactions to change. One, the church will deny that change is happening around them and do nothing. Two, the church will acknowledge that change is happening and do nothing. They'll say, well, yeah, the culture is shifting, but that doesn't matter to us. That doesn't change anything. And three, the least likely, is when a church acknowledges change is happening and says, okay, Holy Spirit, we're gonna follow. And learns to adapt so that anyone can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be grown into a disciple who makes disciples. Friends, I pray that Fifth accepts the changes happening and won't get distracted on things that divide us and focus on our mission again. This has always been my prayer for Fifth and it remains the same. May you get uncomfortable. May you focus on the call to make disciples of all people. Raising them to know Christ and obey everything that he taught, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May this be a light into a dark world around us. What a time to be alive. Pray with me as we get to celebrate communion together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the ability to come together in freedom. We pray for those sisters and brothers around the world that are huddled together in your name, fearing for their lives. 
we offer up our worship, we offer up our thanks and our lives to you just as you gave up your life for us. May we never take for granted the sacrifice of your life, Jesus. And everything we do, we pray in your precious name. Amen. Thank you.